When you understand that, you actually have the mechanics for peace. When we don't understand that, when we say, dog, you're pissing on my perfectly good tree. I kick the dog. Then war happens. Hello, yogis. Are you pissing on my perfectly good tree? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Dharma Talk. I'm your host, Henry Winslow, and this is episode number 32. This week, I had the pleasure of interviewing Hector Marcel, who is a Buddha Dharma teacher and the president of a yoga and meditation studio in New York City called Three Jewels. And what I really liked about this conversation is that Hector does an amazing job of breaking down some deeply rich and profound concepts in a approachable way. And by approachable, I really mean authentic. Hector explains these concepts through his own personal story. He shares how he stumbled into this community and the study of Tibetan Buddhism by total mistake. Um, He was actually trying to go get drunk with his friends in his 20s, but he also explains why he never looked back after that. Hector shares the symbology behind the name of the studio, Three Jewels, what that means in Buddhism, and the role each one of those jewels plays in delivering us from a perpetual state of suffering. And I think the real crux of this conversation is Hector talks about how cultivating what he calls an inside-out understanding of our own perception can help us to develop compassion and empathy for all beings. And if you stick around for the whole interview, at the end, you're going to hear a really beautiful story about how Hector's practice and effort and discipline in studying these concepts over decades came together and flowed through him in the most natural possible way. I can't wait for you to hear this interview. I learned a lot. I think you will too. So please stay tuned through these announcements and we'll dive into this interview with Hector Marcel. New York City yogis. I am very happy to say that my recent workshop at Yoga and Fitness Herald Square on backbending for health and joy was a success. The students were very happy and the studio has decided to bring it back as a three-part series. So if you missed out on the first one or if you did the first one and want to do it again, we are holding backbending for health and joy on October 6th. 20th and November 10th. You can do one or all three. I'd love to see you there. Sign up at henrywins.com slash events. For those of you located elsewhere, I've got some travel dates coming up that I hope you can join me for. On October 11th through 14th, I'm going to be at Original Hot Yoga 305 in Miami, Florida. Then on November 16th through 18th, I'll be in Richmond, Virginia, my hometown at the Yoga Dojo. The following weekend, November 24th and 25th, I'll be at Hot Yoga Richmond. And for the Miami and Hot Yoga Richmond dates, I'm traveling with my wife, Veronica Lombo. We've got complimentary workshop offerings, and we hope you can make it. Sign up at henrywins.com slash events. At Lighthouse Yoga School in Brooklyn, New York, we are currently enrolling our next 200-hour teacher training for January 2019. So yoga teachers looking to level up your teaching, aspiring yoga teachers who want to do your first training, or yoga students who just want to take their practice a little bit deeper. You can get more information about that also at henrywins.com slash events. And if you apply now using my referral code, henrywins, you'll save $100 on your tuition. There's no fee to apply, so go ahead, put your application in, drop the referral code, and lock in $100 off. What's your purpose? What's your vision? What mark will you leave on this planet long after you're gone? I'm Henry Winslow, and you're listening to Dharma Talk, the only podcast where I interview inspirational yogis on how they're changing the world in their own unique ways. Whether you're still searching for your purpose or already walking the path, I hope these stories get you excited to live your dharma. Hello, Dharma Talk community, and welcome back to another episode. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking to Hector Marcel. 
Hector is a Buddha Dharma teacher and the president of Three Jewels, the Enlightenment Studio, where he collaborates with a powerful team of yogis, meditation teachers, and social change agents to facilitate transformational experiences to people in the heart of New York City and abroad. He's a social entrepreneur, public speaker, and seasoned organizational change management professional, specializing in performance, culture, and service. Hector consults from his base in New York City to a variety of international clients, integrating Eastern philosophy into corporate culture and modern life. Hector, I'm so happy to have you on. Um, you know, one of my earlier guests, Rose Aaron Vaughn, connected to me to you, and it's been a long time coming. So how are you today? I'm doing fantastic, actually. Really happy to be back in New York. I've been away for a couple of months and stepping back into this thriving heartbeat of the world in a community like Three Jewels uh, has been extremely nourishing and um, just beautiful for me. I'm very happy to be home despite the noise and the smells and you know all the beautiful New York things. Yes, and I think that's actually all those smells, <laughs> those are all part of the beauty of New York City, aren't they? <laughs> Well, you know, I was in Australia, and in Australia, everything is a little bit beautiful. Cookie cutter, lovely, you know, perfect lawns, beautiful blue skies, clean streets. And then you drop yourself back into the heart of New York City, and you see humanity at its best, you know, yes. like we're all crammed in here. And yeah. there's, there's a reality check that happens when you step back in here. Um, yeah. And I, I don't know, it was blissful for me to come home. Come home. Yeah, exactly. I mean, where where is the edge and and humanity and the perfect blue sky? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's inside of us in the middle of New York City going over um maybe a running rat heading towards the subway <laughs> for chasing, me <laughs> chasing that last piece of pizza. Well, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> well, Hector, um, I always open these interviews every single episode with the same first question, which I know you are very well prepared to handle, and that's this. What does the word dharma mean to you, and what is your dharma as you understand it today? Yeah, I'm so happy you asked the question. If you rewind 23 years, I would have said to you, I've got no idea what you're talking about. What is this weird language? But um, thanks to a serendipitous encounter with um, a teacher and a philosophy and a practice, I can tell you now that uh, Dharma means all sorts of, of things, uh, but ultimately it, it means a kind of truth, a reality beyond all differences of opinion. Um, you know, the, the root Dharma is, comes from der to hold or support, you know, and came into English in, in things like firm or throne or farm things like this, and it means like solid ground, a truth beyond, uh, unshakable truth, you know. Um, it can also mean existing things. So I, I'm very aware that the word Dharma has got all these implications, but for me what it's become by teaching Buddha Dharma, it's become the, the idea or the reality that every single experience I have inside and out holds this diamond-like firmness, this... Uh, truth to it that is unshakable and when you're attuned to that when you glimpse into it despite the illusion that we might be swimming in the noises in new york and and the rest when you pierce through the veil of what is appearing and you reach it the ultimate way things exist their tur their dharma uh then you are in a kind of peace and accord with that nature, the ultimate nature of things. You know, it, uh, you said I run uh, the three jewels. It's the three jewels is a is a term that is used in in Buddhist practices for the things that can ultimately protect you. And one of those things is Dharma. So you know, you ask most Buddhists, and they say Dharma is the teachings of the Buddha. But when you go digging and investigating, and then practicing through meditation. Um, you get to see that it, you know, it's not a thing you can label. It's actually a thing that does not have the illusionary labels. And so it's, a, it's, it's being in accord with truth and realizing that everything that springs from it um, is a type of dharma, but not its ultimate form. 
I don't know if that was too convoluted. Um, it, it basically is for me that it reminds me that we are walking in a potential bliss paradise and and we are holding on to an illusionary view of that through habit of mind, but it's always accessible for us to reach a state of awakening. Mm-hmm. That's Dharma. Yes, you know, it, it's not a convoluted answer any more than it should be, right? Because these are very profound concepts that, that take some level of explanation, but also beyond that, like our language only has its own limits as well. Um, I'm curious, what what are the other two jewels representations of in this these three fixtures oh, that are there to sure. serve us? You know, it, it's it's interesting. I, I'll give you a little bit of background first. I I came into Buddhist practice completely by mistake. I was hoping to go into a housewarming party and get really drunk in my twenties on Fifth Street in New York, and I stumbled into the building next door that was having a party, and I thought that was the party we we're going to go to, and it was the opening of the Three Jewels in 1996. Right, all people welcome Tibetan Buddhist tea house and bookstore and I walk in there and it's three jewels and eventually I got to ask you know what's this place what's it mean three jewels and they said well it's a thing that can actually protect you from ultimate from suffering in general from samsara from the things that really uh, hurt us in our world the nominal things and the ultimate things like aging and death and so on and they are the Buddha jewel the Dharma jewel and the Sangha jewel and so I learned that Buddha, Dharma, Sangha are these things that protect you. Uh, and the more I investigate, study, practice, and learn, the more if you, if you get real about it, if you really say, okay, fine, how does it protect me? Uh, what kind of protection does it give me? You need to go and dig because there ain't no Buddha, no Buddha statue, no picture of Buddha that can actually fix my karma that fix my problems, right? I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, in the, even in the time of the Buddha, you know, the Sakya clan that he was a part of, they got slaughtered around him, grabbing onto his robes, and uh, there was no protection there coming from a Buddha. And the Dharma, assuming it's what he speaks, you know, if he speaks truth, you know, how, how come it didn't help those people? And so when you go and dig the, the real the deeper meaning that you get through meditating and investigating. The Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, in essence, have the same nature, which is in itself Dharma, the ultimate way that things exist. So the Buddha jewel, in essence, is the fact that the mind of an enlightened being, a Buddha, has the same nature as your mind and my mind. At its core, it is a changeable thing because it doesn't have a nature from its own side. It is Here's that big Buddhist word, empty of having a nature. Mm. If your mind was Henry's mind, always Henry's mind, then anybody that heard your mind would say, oh, that's Henry. And the fact that people walk up to you on the street and go, I don't know who you are, means there's nothing coming from your mind saying, this is Henry, you know. Or you would have woken up as a baby going, I am Henry. This is the mind of Henry. And so the fact that your mind is a changeable thing and doesn't have a solid nature, that's its emptiness. That's its uh, ultimate dharma. Uh, The word dharma then, and that can protect you because it means you can get enlightened. Because it's changeable, if you put in the right courses, it can deliver you out of the states of temporary suffering that we find ourselves in. And in that sense, it's complete protection. Understanding the nature of your mind is the same as the nature of a Buddha's mind. So the Buddha jewel, that fact you already have in your mind, that can protect you. But it requires causes and conditions, which you know is the whole study of karma. And then the Dharma is that very fact. The, the Dharma jewel is the very fact that everything, everything without exception, is empty of having a nature, and therefore completely changeable you know what could be a cut in your arm people would say that's a horrible thing and other people would say that's a beautiful thing you're removing the poison that the snake put in there a -hmm. cut in the arm doesn't have a nature it's empty of being a good thing or a bad thing 
dependent on who was engaging with him. And that's a dharma. That's the truth. There is no nature in that. The fact that you're having an experience with it, that's your, that's, uh, your collection of, of uh, karma, let's say. And then the sangha jewel, the thing, the, is, is the collection of beings who have already reached that state where they see reality for what it is. They see the dharma in, in reality, see the ultimate truth of things and act and practice in the way. And therefore, they can show you, teach you, you can learn from them on how to accelerate your path to freeing yourself from the illusion that things might be what they appear. Mm-hmm. So, so is, is there anything that is not empty of, of meaning apart from what we assign to it? Um, yeah. So, so here is a, a funny question, right? Cause uh, we're using, look, you said it earlier to put words into concepts. Right. Yeah. Already we've ascribed the word emptiness to an idea, an experience that you have in your mind in relation to all existing things. So as soon as I say empty, we have some kind of picture in our mind of what that might be. And the first time I heard empty and thinking it's pitch black, empty space, you know, like we're thinking all these things. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not that things don't have meaning because our minds go there straight away. And it's not that they don't function. It's on the contrary. There is nothing that is not empty. I need to give you a double negative. There's nothing that is not empty. In fact, every single existing thing outside of us and within us has by its nature, by its dir, the thing it holds, the dharma, emptiness. It lacks being inherent by its own nature. There's nothing that is not that. Mm-hmm. Putting that aside, you have to find out, well, where the hell do the things that I'm experiencing come from them if they don't have a nature? Are you saying that a car can be an airplane? And a cat can be a dog. And that's not what I'm saying. A dog is empty of being dog, meaning not every single object that looks at a dog, what we call a dog, must call it a dog. Some beings look at it and say, that's food. Some people, some pe- people say that that object is a puppy. And other things don't even conceive of it like a flea or, or whatever. So there's nothing inherent in what we call dog projecting dog but that also does not mean at all that there is no dog for you and me that there is no food for the lion that there is no i don't know walking vessel for the flea right they just conceive of it truthfully for them right as the thing that they are forced to perceive so in a sense our perception is not invalid and it's not meaningless but it is very much subjective it it is and it's not by choice this is another big misconception when you get into the nitty-gritty of really identifying what is it that we are engaging with in this universe right we from a western perspective thing think that things are out there and our eyes are capturing light and our ears are capturing sound waves and our taste buds are capturing. So as if there's stuff out there that is definitively in a certain way, and we have interpreters, eyes, ears, nose, etc., that decide what things are. Mm-hmm. Number one, you cannot decide in the moment. Yeah, When you see a dog, picture of dog pops into your mind. It's not, not a dog. Yeah. Um, In fact, what this philosophy says, what Eastern philosophy is saying, the yogis of the past, the Buddha Dharmaists, if they get to the truth, the dir of Dharma, they will get to realize there is nothing that is by nature what it appears, but it is precisely what it appears to the perceiver, and that's what makes it real. In other words, being a dog isn't that there's some soul that flew away into heaven and got stuffed into a dog body and all of a sudden you're a dog walking in four legs. It's not like that. It's the perception of that being seeing and experiencing the world in the way that dogs do, tasting, smelling, peeing in a certain way, very different to the way you and I perceive the same room, the same pole or tree, (laughs) 
the the impulses you know the impulses within that being and the impulses within our being are what in fact are projecting our reality onto otherwise empty objects uh-huh. it doesn't mean that there aren't objects there are objects there is a tree for us and there is a toilet for a dog they are both true but neither of them come from the tree or the pole because for the for the bug that's eating the wood it's food so which is it it can't be three things at once can it in fact it can if there are three beings there Mm -hmm. and that inside out perspective of reality is all encompassing you know and that was the hardest thing for me to get 20 years ago it took me decades to try and twist my mind into not seeing the world as being forced into my senses and trying to make my brain work and interpret reality. But to flip it and go, my mind is labeling that up and down cylindrical thing as tree, not by choice. And that's what makes it real for me. And dogs cannot see it that way. They see toilet. I mean, I'm being silly, but you understand the premise. I do, yeah, I do. Yeah, and you know, to go through this sort of, I don't know, thought experiment, this exercise, this is very, these are very cerebral concepts, and I think it really comes back to, in a way, at least the way that I'm, you know, reading it from the way you're describing, it, it's it's sort of an empathy exercise, and to be able to empathize with not only another person's point of view, but from a totally different creature's point of view. Does that seem fair? Uh, uh, com- completely. Yeah. Any sentient creature has a valid perception of reality to their mode of being. Yeah. Then the big question is where the hell did their perceptions come from and my perceptions come from? Mm-hmm. And that then makes sense. Uh, the, all the other teachings and practices of compassion, taking care of others, don't get angry, blah, blah, blah. All of those practices, and even the more subtle ones, pranayama, withdrawal, etc., then they all make sense if you're trying to affect the projector of the projections we're walking through, which is the mind, mm-hmm. the depth of your consciousness. Go as deep as you can, experience it through withdrawal, focus meditation, absorption, and so on. And when you get there, you can't not not see the nature of reality. You must see it because your mind is projecting onto things that don't have nature. So then, of course, you walk around and and you understand a perspective that might not be yours because they are. it's not by choice that we experience tree versus toilet. It's by impulsion. When you understand that, you actually have the mechanics for peace. When we don't understand that, when we say, dog, you're pissing on my perfectly good tree, I kick the dog, then war happens. The, dis- the disconnect between all the sentient creatures crawling on this planet with all completely different projections of what is, if you think that reality is in the things out there, then that creates war. Because at some point, I'm going to say, no, you're wrong, Henry. Your view is wrong. You can't possibly see this tree as a toilet. Don't mess up my good tree. And so I'm going to do something to push you away because you're not making me happy. And what I don't see, what I'm blind to, the illusion here is that by pushing you away, I think I've done a good thing. But in fact, I've created an imprint in my mind of hurting you, pushing you away, etc., which is in my mind. And it must produce a result, cause and effect. And that result is having a negative experience similar to what the one I gave you. And that causes my suffering in some future time. Mm-hmm. Karma. And then, and so the tragedy of, of, of human existence on the planet is that forever pushing people out of the way to get what we want. Where we think is the only way to get what we want. Or fighting against people that have different views is in fact the very cause that creates our problems that we're trying to escape from in the first place. Because if life is a projection, because the ultimate nature of all things, the der, is that things don't have a nature, and the nature they have is what my mind is forcing me to perceive, then I better change my mind and I change the world. 
And that's hard to live. <laughs> it's like it sounds like right. an explanation, but it's so difficult to like to live. You know, like I, I could have a mental event right now and get angry and I didn't cause it in the moment. Your words didn't cause it. They're empty of having that nature. It came from my mind. But I don't want to see that. I want to blame why, you. Why is that so hard? Why Why does our mind want to be so short-term focused? Is that one of these impulses that's driving our perception of, of the things going on around us? Well, it's habit, right? So it, it, it's a mental habit. And in fact, our brains are structured due to that habit. Yeah? So... The neurons firing off in our brains, the very structure of our brain is such that it will avoid negativity at all costs in whatever the shortest, most energy efficient way is. So if I want you, let's say I like muffins and you and I are in a shop and there's one muffin left and you're in front of my of the line, I'm going to try desperately to push you out of my way to get that last muffin. Yeah. Yeah. And so my mind says, go for the fastest, quickest, get what you want. You will be happy. Yeah, it's it's ingrained in our way of viewing the world, not just in this life, but the theory is in eons of lifetimes before that this mind belonged to someone else, if you like. Yeah. And so my impulse to push you out of the way and get you to not have a muffin so I could be happy is actually creating an imprint in my mind of me having lack of muffins in the future. <laughs> but I can't see that, right? So I act on impulse. And then when it doesn't work in some future, when I don't get a muffin, what's my natural reaction? Push someone else out of the way to get a muffin. And that's just creating less and less muffins in my world. Mm -hmm. And so the habits that we create through what we think is engaging in a world that is out there existing because the happiness comes from that muffin out there. That's how I get happy. Then I'm going to do anything possible to get that muffin more than you. But if I understand that the muffin comes from a projection inside of me and the happiness that follows is some happiness I planted in someone else, then I'm going to try everything possible to make sure you get that muffin even though I want it. That's the only way I can guarantee my muffin in the future. Right. That's, a, that's the best, most eloquent way I've ever heard anyone describe what sometimes I've heard called um, the law of attraction. Are you familiar with, with that, that idea, yeah. that paradigm? Uh, ab absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and I, I don't know if that stems from the same Buddhist teaching, but it certainly has a lot of parallels there. When, when, I, saw, uh, when I saw a bunch of uh, documentaries on it, I... I Here's a beautiful example, Henry. I couldn't, I couldn't not see the Dharma I had been studying in those documentaries. When I saw people explain the law of attraction, after 20 years or 15 years of studying what I just described, that your mind projects reality onto things, I had to see it as the same teaching that I've been habituating my mind to see. Yeah. You see what I mean? Of course, yeah. <laughs> it attracted what I mean. It was a. It's, it's like a snake biting itself. Yeah, <laughs> it's completely meta. So I was aware that that's where it came from, and that's what it is. But here is the crux. That's what makes it. That reality was real for me. Wow, this came from a depth of teaching. Someone got hold of the essence and presented it eloqu eloquently. Mm -hmm. Wow, for me that was the Buddha speaking and all the yogi realized yogis before speaking truth through a documentary. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. They, got a little, a little bit of a background noise on my end going on over here. <laughs> That's okay. I've got the, the J train going on. <laughs> Welcome to New York. Welcome to New York podcast listeners. Uh, so Hector, I'd love to hear, I know you touched a little bit about it earlier, but how did you find your way into this path? Because it seems like if you had asked yourself this, you know, many years ago, it would have been very unlikely that you could have predicted this is where you'd end up. Yeah, and um, I'm going to try not to cry because every time I think about it, I feel so blessed. I feel like... Um, I feel uh, sort of undeserving of such beauty in my mind. Um, 
told her a joke just to avoid crying. I was born when I was very young. <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> uh, in Argentina, and so I grew up sort of in poverty. My parents had to migrate to Australia, and I always felt like the dumb kid, the kid that couldn't study because I didn't have language. I didn't have English. Um, when we moved there, nobody could speak Spanish, and uh, my dad made sure we didn't speak Spanish so we weren't embarrassed. So I always felt like an outsider, a kid that couldn't learn, that couldn't um, really graduate beyond high school. That was a stretch for me. You know, definitely never uh, a, a student of Eastern philosophy or any philosophy at all. Um, and in my 20s, I decided I, I'm never going to make it to university, so I'm going to just get a backpack and travel the world and see what other humans are doing. Maybe I'll pick a way of living that is similar to the ones that I saw happiest. So I got myself a backpack, and someone had introduced me to Anne Rand. I don't know if you know her. Mm -hmm. The Fountainhead, Atlas Shrugged, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that whole philosophy, which basically says everybody except the people that own industry are garbage, and we're all leeching off the industrialists. And so I'm like, yes, that makes sense to me. I have to be an industrialist. I have to, <laughs> I have to make a lot of money, and not leech off people. That's that's what I uh, I got from that. So I got all her books, put them in my backpack, and I started traveling. And I sort of did a three year round the world trip. And in one of those rounds, what I just told you about bumping into the three jewels by mistake, um, was a serendipitous thing that happened because the day before I had had a very intense dream about death and dying and a disconnect between the way I was feeling in New York and the way I was perceived. And um, I went to the park um, at Union Square to sort of ponder these things and I'd picked up a Buddhist book, never seen it before, Secret Teachings of Tibetan Buddhist Monks, uh, sects, sorry. And I'm reading this book, makes no sense, from an Ayn Rand perspective, it's complete garbage. There's all these weird Sanskrit words and uh, Buddhist words. And as I'm trying to read this book, these two trucks pull up on either side of me, kid you not, and they start setting up chairs facing the same direction I'm facing. They build a stage, maybe, I don't know, 30 feet away from me or something like that. And I said to the guy, what's going on? And he's like, oh, today's Buddha's birthday. We have a parade in a major city around the world every year, and this year it's New York. So we've got monks and nuns from every tradition going to explain Buddhist thought. So I closed my book, and I'm like, that's interesting. You know, like I didn't believe magic happened, and so it's it's sort of like I had to have that kind of abrasive, in-your-face experience to actually pay attention that something else was shifting inside of me. First of all, the picking up of the Buddhist book, this dream that was very strange, that had to do with death and dying and really got me to wake up that I had no foundation to my worldview. And then the <laughs> Buddhist birthday parade and talk, you know, I didn't have to move. It was in my face. And I listened to it. I swear to you, Henry, I cannot remember anything they said. I can only remember thinking this is very strange uh, that I'm holding this book, that I'm sitting here, and Rand is beginning to fade in my mind after holding her tight for a few <laughs> years. And then the next day, I'm I'm walking uh, to this housewarming party, excited to get drunk with my friend. I told him about this um, this experience I had about the Buddha parade, and he's like, he's a surfer dude. He's like, hey man, we should totally study that Buddha stuff. It's really cool. And as he said that, we see Three Jewels Tibetan Buddha bookstore and tea house opening night, and we thought that was the building because it was next door to our building. We walk in, I bump into a bunch of monks and nuns, asking them, like really wondering, what is Buddhism? Like, I want the one word answer, you know. And I thought they were very strange people. They couldn't tell me what Buddhism word in a was in a sentence. And so I ping-ponged to the back of the, of the building, and eventually I met this beautiful girl. She was like 17, looking angelic. Her name was Aura. And they all pointed to her and said, oh, you should talk to her. And she's like, I don't know. Um, it's difficult to explain. It's about, you know. Um, and anyway, that was an experience. It really uh, shifted my mind. Something weird was going on. I went to the party, got drunk, got home, and dreamt the most 
awakening dream I've ever had. It's filled with symbolism about stuff that I later learned was essential Buddhist practices. Um, and this aura girl popped up in the dream and told me I came home. She's like, Hector, you're home. You don't need to fear death. You're home. And she pointed to the skyline of New York. The three jewels was there in the middle of the skyline of New York. And there was this very ominous, significant meaning behind her words. And I, a peace came over my heart and said, oh, I'm home. So disturbed, I wake up in the morning and I go to Three Jewels with my stupid Buddhist book. And I said, I can't make sense of this. Can someone teach me meditation? And that's how it began. I don't tell the story too often because it sounds um, you know, magical and all these things. And I really don't think practice is that. I think it can get you there. And the more that um, that you practice, the more that you have those experiences, but they're sort of private and beautiful because, you know, who's going to believe you that you had sort of a magical incantation from a from an angelic being in your dream telling you you've reached your spiritual home, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so therein began my fight with my mind and meditation. I hated it. The first two years was hard. It was, you know, I had the habit of, looking at the world from an outside-in perspective versus an inside-out perspective. And so every time I had to do some practice, I'm like, this is stupid. Why are people bowing? You know, this is stupid. What do you mean things don't have a nature? Like it took me a, a, a while, but there were enough moments, the special moments in, in the path that really kept me hooked in, literally hooked into the ideas that couldn't be undone by my previous views. Mm-hmm. So I sort of fought my way, um, trying to fight my way out, but I, I had to stay. 20 years later, I'm teaching. I'm the president of Three Jewels. You know, I came back to New York and they needed somebody to teach. And eventually I'm on the board and we have an incredible community of people uh, trying to make sense of the world we live in and, and accessing these ancient practices in a practical, meaningful way in the hope that they would have a glimpse of, of what I was able to have in the 20 years of trying and other teachers before you maybe say something about one of these special glimmers of truth that kept you on the path what was one of the most um difficult moments of struggle for you because you know you had this very um i don't know powerful introduction that i'm I'm sure that gave you a rocket boost to stick with this it's like there's too much serendipity too much coincidence to ignore but you said, you know, it was hard to retrain your mind. Was there, was there a specific moment you can recall that really challenged you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, a couple of years, like three years into fighting against these practices, I'm surrounded by a community of students and teachers and friends on the path, yogis. We do little retreats. We meditate together. We study. It's a clicky New York group. It feels awesome. And then I have an immigration issue. I'm Australian. I don't, I'm not American. I'd gotten here uh, to work with a partner and start a business that didn't work out. If you want that full story, you can go to the TEDx talk on how to get rid of your angry boss. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'll link to that. That's a whole notes. story unto itself. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and lo and behold, I hire a lawyer. I had a great job. I was an agent for high-end photographers. Um, I put my apartment on hold. I tell my partner I'm leaving for two weeks. I come back. My clients, I'll come back in two weeks. Um, Go to Australia to pick up my visa, thanks to my lawyer. When I get there, I think it was Clinton at the time had changed the immigration process, and the two weeks became four weeks, and a delay of six weeks that then became another two weeks. Eventually, nine months of back and forth and change of immigration policy, I find myself in Australia. The food in my fridge in the in New York is rotting. I have to let go of my lease. All my funds are finished. And I find myself stranded in Australia without the community or the serendipity or the miracle that it was to find a place like Three Jewels. Even though I was fighting against it, it was really delivering me insight that I, uh, I think I took for granted. And then all the doubts that come from practice, you know, is meditation really going to make a difference? Is chanting blah, blah, blah going to really make a difference? I still had all those doubts, you know, it's like, 
why do people follow gurus and teachers? What the hell is that about? You know, so I had all these doubts that I was holding, but I was enjoying the community. And all of a sudden, within a two-week period, I'm out. I'm on the other side of the world. And Henry, this is before internet, before cell phones. To call the Three Jewels from Australia, you had to be like three in the morning over there and you pay $5 a minute or $10 a minute or something stupid. So it was hard to even get the refuge that you get from calling a friend. Um, and so after nine months, I gave up trying to come back. I accepted the fact that I'd be stuck in Australia. Um, and I decided to really, really begin the practice that I thought I was practicing when I was here. Um, and I didn't have uh, a sangha, a community. I, I had the teachings that I'd gotten, which now became super precious because they weren't accessible anywhere else. Uh, they, I understood them in the way that I was able to explain to you in the, in the, earlier today. And, and it was really up to me. Like you had to Hector face Hector. Don't get padded around with all this cushion. What is your mind? Are you having a daily meditation practice? Do you really understand in your heart, intellectually first, what this emptiness and karma is and why compassion? Are you standing it in your mind? And then are you embodying that in your actions off the cushion? And so there, there began, I guess, what I call the real practice. And also the um, undoing of the doubts. Um, I faced every single doubt that was sort of in the background chatter of my mind. And I faced it. You know, I remember my teacher at the time saying, you know, you don't have to practice Buddhist practice. It, if you think you're really going to get happy getting drunk or getting high or getting a good job or getting money, you've got to get that out of your system. If you think that's really going to deliver you happiness, status or whatever, try it. And that stayed in the back of my mind. And because I was in Australia and nobody could see me, I tried it, Henry. I spent two years stoned on the beach in, in Cairns, reading during the day and meditating just in case. But I thought getting high was going to help me. And after a while, I got bored. And then I tried the job and getting a job was going to help me. And then after a while, it's like another job. And then relationships and sensual pleasure is going to help me. And then after a while, you get dissatisfied. Lucky for me that I kept the meditation and the study practice as a foundation, but I thought I'm going to try what I think is going to get me happy. And I got it out of my system in a really healthy way where I know that there is bliss that can come from taking substances. There is bliss that can come from enjoying a partner. There is bliss that can happen when you uh, work with a hundred people and, and do some activity we call jobs. But that bliss didn't come from the jobs, that didn't come from the substance, that didn't come from the partner. It was imbued upon it by my mind because I trained it. So, And I could link after a while the meditations that I was doing, the efforts to remove negativity and address the world with kindness and virtue. I saw it return a thousandfold to the point where like I told you, I feel um, sort of unworthy to receive the experiences I'm having um, after 20 years of practice. Mm -hmm. um, well, that, 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 that really is, is what I mean, that really, to me, sounds like that is the ultimate practice, right? I mean, you you can study these concepts in books or hear from lectures from experts like yourself, you know, that these things only are imbued with the meaning and happiness that we attribute to them. But you actually went through the time and effort and experience of doing it yourself. You know, you tried each one of these things in phases and, and felt that rather than just being told it. There's no real better way to learn it than that. Yeah. And you know, frankly, I attribute it to having those self doubts early on. Or I'm just a dumb kid. I can't learn anything. And so whenever there was a little bit of wisdom, I'd have to chew on it over and over because my projection about my kind of mind, the kind of mind that I have is that I'm not a very intelligent person. I don't have a good mind. And so with that comes this sort of stubbornness to really, really get to the essence of something in an honest way, in a simplistic way. In a, and lo and behold, it's the, the earnestness, the, the, 
genuineness with which I approached it resulted in a genuineness and earnestness in which I'm experiencing it now. Mm-hmm. And, and I can't give that to anyone as an experience. I can tell you in words that when you're able to link cause and effect over a period, a long period of time, mental cause and effect I'm talking about, the intentions I planted and the efforts I planted in my practices, you know, five, ten years ago and the results I'm having in my mind right now, I see the correlation clearly, you know, um, and you're right, you need to practice it yourself. There's no one, there's no one with a magic wand going to come and shring you over the head and all of a sudden you're okay. Yeah, you, that's it's a know, tough pill to swallow for some, I'm sure, especially yeah. just getting into whatever type of spiritual practice they're they're getting into. It's very tempting to look to a teacher to to give you all the answers, but really, you know, you have to be your own teacher at a certain point. Yeah, but but here is the thing: like there are teachings, they do function. There are teachers that they have realizations, just like there is a tree, and it can be a tree or a pee pee toilet. <laughs> It doesn't come from the teacher or the teachings. The virtue in your mind has to be there to activate the meaning. Does that mean that nobody would get a shring if, if a holy teacher touched them on the head? Not true. Some people do. You could, I mean, you can meet His Holiness the Dalai Lama, have a complete heart-opening experience that changes the trajectory of your life. You could be in the middle of Union Square and have the complete, but it doesn't come from the chairs that were put down there. It doesn't yeah. come from the red robe that he's wearing. It's projected by your mind. Uh-huh. And so, yes, you can have a... And this is the other thing, Henry. I mean, I came from a Catholic background. My mom was going to be a nun. Uh, obviously, that didn't work out because I'm here. And uh, she she had, you know, this, this, the whole iconography of the Virgin Mary in South America, Catholic practice and so on. People are devout, the devout Catholics. They go into caves and they have visions of the virgin and blah 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 and i used to think that was all stupid with buddhist thought i've returned to argentina and i know for a fact that a person with a kind of mind that is filled with virtue in a specific way can walk into a cave see a shape on the wall that i just see as a shape and for them they have a blissful experience of a teaching of a, from a holy being that will change their mind forever. And it's valid for them, as valid as a tree is for me and not a dog. Mm-hmm. And, and so I get to see all sorts of traditions on the planet right now. And with this view, see how it's possible that what we've made ritualized had an, had a, an essence behind it at some point or still has for some. And then your your experience of it, your experience of that uh, ritual or that person or that method will deliver you. But there's nothing in those things from their own side. Mm-hmm. I know, and it sounds like I'm saying two things. No, I I understand the. Um, I mean, there is a bit of an like inherent contradiction in there, but it's something that is reconciled through the practice, right? And and through. Um, continuing contemplation. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You have to break it down and break it down. And you'll come to hard questions. Like you said, you know, what was like the hardest thing for me? And for me, that time where I was kicked out of New York and my world um, felt like a pain. But the, the way that I engaged with it delivered me bliss, you know. So which is it, pain or bliss? You know, it's prana moving, which your mind then associates with a certain quality it's not in the prana. It's not in the movement of energy. Let me ask you this. For people who are listening to this podcast now and um, what you're saying is resonating, what can they expect at Three Jewels? Um, what are you guys doing over there? What are you excited about? Oh. And, and who, does, who could this benefit? Yeah, so the Three Jewels, uh, you've been to it recently. Three Jewels recently moved to a ground floor location on the Bowery and Third Street. For 20 years, we've been up on a third floor. 14 years, we've been up on the third floor. Nobody knew about us. It was a nice clicky group of Buddhists um, <coughs> teaching these very philosophies in a very practical way. Uh, but it, 
you know, we weren't really on social media and the rest. And in the last four years, we've undergone an internal transformation, sort of a reality check. And then New York being New York, got buildings got sold. We were forced to, to either close it down or level up. And we decided to level up. So we opened this beautiful studio that's full of metaphors. So when you walk into Three Jewels, you've seen it. You walk into a, like a retail cafe. It's a nice place to hang out. You can buy stuff. And that represents the nominal world. And then you walk towards what looks like a pink or rose-colored mirror wall. And hidden in the wall is a door and so in essence, you're looking, you're walking towards your own reflection through pink colored, gross colored glasses. <laughs> and then you enter the, the in-between space in Buddhism. We call that the bardo, where you leave all your physical belongings, your bag, your jacket, everything. And then you enter into the yoga meditation room, which is just free of all iconography. It's just this white room where the main thing is your mind, you and your mind. And so there we teach meditation. We give free or by donation classes two or three times a day, depending on the day. We have community classes for that and yoga. We have a really robust yoga schedule. Rose Aaron is one of the teachers there, incredible people teaching, practicing these philosophies uh, and sharing them through asana practice. Um, we also have Dharma talks or public talks, some that are secular, so come the most Wednesdays or every now and then on Wednesdays we have the super spiritual show, which is trying to get all these ideas in a Instagrammable, memeable way <laughs> so we can play and have fun um, because that reality is everywhere. <laughs> and then uh, the core or the foundation of our Dharma classes is these courses, the Asian Classics Institute courses, which summarizes a 20-year curriculum in a monastery into a six, seven-year program. And there are 18 courses people go through, 10, 12 weeks a course. I've just started teaching course 18, which is a review of the review classes. Uh, and, and people get the essence of Buddhist practice and white functions. And then they get access to the original texts from either Master Shantideva in India, 700 AD, from the time of the Buddha, from commentaries in Tibet. And you really get access to sort of authentic translations. Beyond that, we have teacher trainings, meditation teacher training, which is starting next week, uh, yoga teacher training, and we have service projects. So we go to Nepal once a year and we take care of a couple of orphanages and schools and all these heady ideas that you practice about what's your world, where does it come from, how do you activate these ideas, then you do it in service. You take care of other human beings. And so we go to Nepal, we, uh, we, we have a couple of projects over there called 108 Lives, it's been 10 years going. We work with the Department of Homeless Services here in New York and teach meditation and yoga to yoga asana to uh, people in shelters. We go to schools and, and teach at schools. Um, and we have all sorts of uh, sort of other clients as well. So if, if you're interested to internalize the ideas, there's lots of ways that you can come in. If you just want to dip your toe, you can come into a sound bath meditation, come to one of the meditations by donation. If you really want to dive in philosophically come to the Asian Classics Institute courses. I teach it every Thursday at 7.30. And if you just really want to check out what kind of folk are there, then come to the cafe, have a cup of tea, <laughs> and be a s sort of private eye, check it all out. Um, it's such a, like, uh, I don't know if you know, but I, the reason I was in Australia for three months, for two months is my mum uh, got diagnosed with cancer and in a, in a very fast, aggressive way. She passed away just five weeks ago. And I was the, had the incredible fortune to be with her through that time, through that period, and and to experience what um, that inevitable thing is with these teachings in my mind pouring out of me to interpret every millisecond of experience with her to help her transition, release any negativity in her mind, generate and rejoice in every goodness that she's ever done, that, that there was so many, uh, was like a testament to, to these practices and, mm -hmm. and this gratitude to this place that is Three Jewels. It really helped me and helped her right to her very last breath. 
And then to come home from that, to come home to New York and step into Three Jewels, which isn't the building or the nice mirrors or the nice lattes or whatever. It's actually the community of people that are practicing these ideas, the inside-out ideas on how to turn your life around. The, you know, you, if you want the to, third jewel. Yeah, the, the third jewel. It really felt like, it still does. Like last night I had my first class and it, I've never felt so protected, cushioned, fulfilled. I've, I, I, I am in love again and again with the things that we have there because people walking in there, um, coming with a genuine urge to practice, you know, of course, we all bring our own delusions, and, um, and but we catch ourselves um, in that as well. So you can expect lots of things from three tools. <laughs> Mostly, it'll be what you bring there. Yeah, uh, but it's just like anything space. else, right? Yeah, of course, of course. Well, I, I was sorry to hear about your mother's passing, but what a blessing to be able to have all the tools that you do have that you've been working for years and years to cultivate and and to take that experience as another learning and practicing opportunity. Yeah, you know, the, the, the most incredible thing about it, I'll give you a, a short summary, is we think we're always trying, we're always practicing sort of a contrived way of being kind or thinking of the ultimate way things exist. Or it's always sort of a, look, sounds like an effort, even after 20 years. But because the situation was so dire and so immediate and so urgent and so powerful, all that bull just disappeared. And I felt this uncontrived, natural expression of everything I was able to learn, put into practice to beneficial aims in the moment. And I felt this flow that I'd never felt before. Um, and I saw it work and I saw it help. And I hope that everybody gets that, but you need to habituate your mind to view the world in a certain way in order to experience the world in that way. Right, right. Well, Hector, thank you for sharing that. I think now is the perfect time to move on to what I call the prana round. This is the closing set of questions for every interview. <laughs> and I ask you six rapid fire questions. I ask you to answer in minimum Here one word, <laughs> maximum one sentence, okay? Okay. In one word, why do you practice meditation? Uh, reach reality. What is your favorite uh, technique or practice and why? Counter practice, not looking like a Buddhist. It keeps me authentic. <laughs> I like that. Sorry. <laughs> What is the single best piece of advice you've ever received from a teacher? The teachers inside of you. Recommend one book, either modern or ancient, for our audience. The Garden uh, by Geshe Michael Roach. You'll get an introduction to all the lineage of Tibetan Buddhist masters in a magnificent way. Okay, great. Um, is Buddhism for everyone? Yeah, I, I don't think the Buddha had the right to reality and either did Christ or Muhammad or anyone, potentially. I think reality belongs to everyone. Um, you can be a Christian Buddhist or a Jewish Buddhist. A Bud, Bud means to wake up, to awake, to go see beyond the illusion. You don't have to be, a, you don't have to believe in anything. You just have to touch truth. Mm -hmm. to wake up to Bud, to Buddha. Okay. Last question. How can our audience get in touch with you and how can we support you in your Dharma? Oh, um, Three Jewels. Uh, you, can e you can go to threejewels.org and send us an email and they'll get in touch with me. You can Instagram Three Jewels NYC or myself, just Hex, J-U-S-T-H-E-X. Um, and support us in our dharma is that there is a mountain of of content both at three jewels and in other places the best thing that people could do is change their world create peace in their mind and the world will change there's no higher offering than your own practice so whatever practice you're doing if you're doing it earnestly dedicate it for the benefit of others and it will have a bigger impact that there's nothing more i wish 
Hector, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. It was really a pleasure to talk to you and and hear some of your stories. I know our guests are going to love it too. So thank you again. My pleasure, Henry. Have a safe day and thanks for doing this. It's beautiful. If you got something out of this episode, if you like Dharma Talk and want to keep it going, please do me a huge favor and subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. I know it's not the most convenient thing to do, but it makes all the difference in getting the show out there and more visible to other people who can benefit from it. And hey, if you've got feedback or ideas or you want to get in touch with me, you can do that on Instagram at Henry Wins. Otherwise, I'll talk to you next week. And until then, keep living your dharma.